So uh, we are back in Exodus chapter 21 today. We're going to attempt to do 21 and 22. We'll see how far we get. I have about like three different plans depending on how our time goes. And so uh, we'll see where we get from there. Uh, but if you uh, have been with this for a while, been tracking before Christmas uh, with the people of Israel uh, in their journey out of Egypt to the promised land. And I can imagine for Moses, by now, this trip has been second-guessed numerous times, right? I don't know about you if you've taken any trips like this, uh, maybe some, some trips with a lot of people. Uh, it starts off very exciting, and then the more people you have, the quicker those trips become uh, very confusing and also very frustrating. Some of my most frustrated times as a person or as a leader has come from uh, large trips. Before uh, being a pastor here full-time, I worked at a Christian school where the senior trip was to Europe. And so we would take about 80, 18-year-olds all throughout Europe for about two weeks. By day two, like I, I wanted to cry, you know? Uh, you know, it's, it's great. You know, you see all of these things and, you know, there's so much excitement and, and there's so much to see and so much to do, but people are people, right? And so the longer you stay with these people, you eat every meal with them, you walk every step with them, you're shoulder to shoulder with them in these crowded elements in these rooms. And I know this is sounding like very first world problems. You're like, I'd love to go, but you could have my spot. Like after the first time, I was like, I never want to do this again. Uh, in fact, my wife was able to go with me. She went with me the first time and she was like, you know what? I'll never do this again. You know, it's just people are just it's just tough to be around people that long, especially when you're in a traveling environment. And Moses finds himself here in a way where he's dealing with a people that are very confused, very frustrated. And they're looking back from slavery to an unknown promised land with confusion. And you can imagine where their hearts, their minds, their bodies, their emotions, everything were. They left everything that they knew to go to a place that they did not know. And yes, God has been doing miracles in their presence and for them. He split the ocean. He's the plagues, the, the water from a rock, manna from heaven, quail at night. All of those things, those are all true. And what's also true is they're very human and very broken, very confused and soon we see that, that the, the humanity of them all begins to just explode into the nation. And so God has brought them out of Egypt to a place called Mount Sinai where he is going to introduce himself to them. So far, they have seen what God can do. They have seen what God has done. And, and Exodus chapter 19 tells us that they really didn't know him or know of his presence. And we see this in Exodus 19 verse 16 through 17. So it came about on the third day there at Mount Sinai when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain with a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. I love this line. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Doesn't that sound a little ominous, but it sounds so hopeful, doesn't it? Let me show you Yahweh. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. So this is where they're at, at a place where they have to be introduced to God. Think about this. Think about the implications of this. Because Moses is introducing them to God, they are a people that need to be introduced to God. Think about that for a second. They are a people that do not know Yahweh. They know of his power. They have seen it. They have experienced it. But they do not know who he is. 
They do not know that he's a covenant God waiting and longing for a promise and a hope and a future with Israel. And so they are a people that need to be introduced to God. They're very confused theologically. They've grown up uh, for 10 generations or more in a polytheistic uh, culture. So, so God introduces himself to them, and he's also introducing what he wants for them as a people, what he wants them to be like, how he wants them to be set apart. In a few verses, he tells them that they're going to be a holy people, completely separate from all the other nations. But not only is he introducing himself to them, correcting theology, he's training them to be his people, to be his holy people, and also to bear his name to the nations of the world. This is very significant because if you remember, the promise to Abraham in Genesis says that his people, his line, will be a blessing to all nations. So through Abraham's line, now the children of Israel are beginning to endure and go into that promise where they are going to be a blessing to all nations. But first, before they can do that, they need to know how to be a blessing, to bear the name of Yahweh, to carry the name of Yahweh to all nations. They're a rogue nation without any kind of formal government. So in this moment, God begins to establish what we would call a theocracy, where God is the moral leader and governing leader of Israel. So many parts of Exodus will see laws that, were, that God has given and struggle to make sense of them. So there's a slightly easier way to think through these laws. There's, we would put them in three categories, and we're going to see these a lot in Exodus, so I'm going to do just a brief overview of what these are. Uh, what we have is some called moral laws. These are the laws that God has given geared towards righteousness. And though he has to be specific, these are things that he's written in our hearts. Our consciences bear witness to these things. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. He says, For all have sinned, without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. He says there's a moral compass built inside all of us. And he says their, car, their consciences bear witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them. So the moral law, though God will become very specific, the things like the Ten Commandments, he says these things have, well, he's already written in our hearts, formed in us from the womb even. This is the moral law. It's still in effect. We call it sin. There's a second type of law, which we see in the Old Testament, that's called ceremonial law. And these laws are given for sacrifice. They include instructions for regaining uh, right standing with God, sacrifices, ceremonies about being clean and unclean, remembrances of God's work in Israel, feasts and festivals, uh, specific rev uh, regulations meant to distinguish Israelites from other pagan nations, dietary things, clothing restrictions. These ceremonial laws would literally point a picture to Israel that they're different than all the other nations in the world. And so some of these laws were literally meant for that purpose, so that when they go into a land, they look different, they talk different, they sound different, they eat different, they do everything different. God is trying to desperately 
put a banner over Israel and say, look at them because they will bear my name. So the third, we see something called a civil law. It's how we uh, look at interactions as a nation together, the laws and consequences that would be established in order for them to thrive as a community. In some ways, they can seem irrelevant. I'll give you a couple, right? In our passage today, Exodus 21, 35, if, a, if one uh, man's ox hurts another so that it dies, then it shall uh, sell the live ox and divide it the price equally. And also they shall divide the dead ox together. Or if it's known as the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner has not confined it, he shall surely pay for an ox, and the dead animal shall become his. Right? Uh, Exodus 22, if a man uh, lets a field or vineyard be grazed bare and let his animals loose so that it grazes another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of the field and the best of his own vineyard. Right. So if your ox has gored another man's ox this week, we're going we're gonna to ask you to come forward immediately. <laughs> Um, it seems irrelevant, doesn't it? And so what happens is this, is when we read passages like this, our tendency is to look at these things and be like, what is this talking about and why does this matter? And so we go, kind of like the 30-day shred. We're just listening like really, really fast. Maybe even we just hit skip, 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 skip. Okay, let's get to something that's more, uh, you know, applicable. Here's what changes all of that for me. This passage in John chapter 21, verse 25. Notice what John says about Jesus. He says, but there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I expect that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So think about this. God in his infinite wisdom chose that there were things, stories, words of Jesus he said, you know what, I'm going to leave that out. And yet in his infinite wisdom, he said, I'm going to put the thing about the ox in here. Think about that for a second. There's a reason why God has sovereignly chosen these words to protect for us in the canon of Scripture. And so the laziness of us pushes us to say, well, let's get to something really important. But when we want to dig into the character and the heart of God, we say, God, what is it? What is it here that you want me to see? Why would you leave this in for thousands of years when no one in this room has an ox? No one has gored uh, someone else's ox this week, I hope and pray, right? But we would say, God, why would we study this? See, I believe that when we study these passages, we see the heart and the character of God. It's in revealed to us through Scripture. I'll be honest. If I had the choice to trade these passages for more passages of Jesus, I'd say, yeah, let's do that. But in his sovereignty, for some reason, he has pushed us here. And so that's what we'll study. And we'll look for the character of God in it. We'll look for Jesus in it. But at first glance, I'll be honest, it, it seems like God may be drowning uh, Israel in these pagan practices, such as things like slavery. Notice this first section in chapter 21. Now, these are the ordinances that you would set before them. So, so they get finished with the Ten Commandments. They're at the base of the mountain. God, uh, Moses has brought them out to meet God. And then God tells Moses, these are the things, these are the laws, these are the civil laws that you need to push on Israel. This is how they're going to be different. 
If you buy if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. I feel like even at that front sentence, that's first sentence, most of us want to go time out. Why are we talking? Why is why is it? Why is there a a place in Scripture where you say if you buy a slave? Why are we not saying don't buy a slave? Right? We're going to get there. Let's go even further. He says, but on the seventh he shall go free as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. And if he's a husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. And his master gives him a wife, and she bears sons or daughters. The wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if, he, uh, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awe, and she, he shall permanent, serve him permanently. If a man sells a daughter as a female slave, she should not go free as male slaves do. If she's displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall uh, let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. And if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. Maybe we should keep reading. <laughs> and if he will not do these three things for her, then she should go out for nothing without payment. So this seems ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like the passage should just say like, hey, Israel, you guys don't operate in a slave environment. I know that you did for generations before, but that's not how you're going to do. There's no slaves ever, Israel. It seems like that would be the right thing to say. And honestly, if we didn't have a verse 16, that would be very difficult to swallow. But let's look at 21:16. He says this, he who kidnaps a man whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So in this same passage that you have what we think of as slavery, we have this word that's very familiar to us in the context of American history. We have this very familiar word, and yet in the same line of commands, God says you may not force anyone involuntarily into your own possession. So we automatically know by just logical thought this slavery that he talks about is very different than the slavery that we are accustomed to, right? What does it look like? In ancient Israel, in ancient cultures, there was four different ways that a person could be enslaved. The first was foreign-born servants who li whose lives were spared in war. Uh, so prisoners of war, uh, but also, like, the, as God would command Israel to go in and, and wipe out a nation, a pagan nation who had multiple opportunities to repent and turn to him, he would sometimes allow Israel to bring those people in uh, for their protection. Uh, they would call them chattel slavery. The second was there were six-year servants who returned for wages and other benefits. These were people who were too poor to provide for themselves. Uh, they could not provide safety, protection, uh, housing, food, clothing. They, they could not provide for themselves. They, they would be homeless otherwise. And so they would enter into a, con a contractual agreement with someone who had money and the means to provide for them, but it wasn't a free ride. They had to work for it. 
Maybe they incurred debt that they could not pay off, and so they would enter into this agreement to say, and God said, you will work for them for six years, and it doesn't matter what your debt is. At the end of six years, you go free. Third, uh, were servants born into the boss's household who owned uh, the boss, uh, owed the boss something for housing them, for food, that, for protection, and for providing for them until they were able to go out. And fourth, uh, there were various sorts of temporary employees. We see these in a lot of Jesus' parables where he would bring in day workers. Remember the parable where Jesus talks about a man who hired workers in the morning and at midday and in the afternoon and then later in the evening and he paid them all the same at the end, right? And so this would be another type of worker or slavery where you would literally say, I'm here today to do whatever you want me to do. So this is the, the types that we're seeing. And we should know also that virtually all industry in the ancient times was household industry or cottage industry. Corporations and businesses, partnerships as we know them today didn't exist. Almost all business was small business in the, fam- in the sense that it was family owned, family operated. Someone who was an employee was under someone, someone's house and household. So what does this teach us? I think this teaches us this, that the character of God and the laws of God restrain the selfish and self-centered tendencies of man. I'm going to explain this a little bit, but I believe in this passage, we see the character of God, the laws of God, and how they restrain the selfishness and the self-centered tendencies of man. I can only imagine that the pent-up frustration of the Hebrews and what they sounded like and acted like coming out of Egypt. Can you imagine growing up as a slave your entire life? Being beaten, oppressed, ridiculed, and now, you know, I think the best of us would say, like if we experienced that, we would say, I never want anyone else to experience that. But there's also this this like nasty part of the human heart that says, I'd like to be on the other side of the table for one offends me, when someone wrongs me, when someone trespasses on my land, when somebody owes me a debt, I will hold my power over them. There's this nasty part of it like that, that I'm sure that some of them would flex on others, their own brothers, slaves their whole lives, entire lives, and now they had at least the opportunity to enslave others. But God said, you're not going to be like that. You're not going to be like Egypt. You're going to be different. You're not going to treat others the way that you were treated. You're not going to impress anyone. No one is going to be forced against their will to work for you and to slave for you. But in God's goodness, he, (coughs) excuse me, he provided and allowed for this social safety net for the poor who had debts that they could not pay. Where would you go if you had no tent or home? How would you provide if you had no money? What if you incurred debt that you could not pay? And in other cultures, you would literally sell yourself into slavery. They would pay you nothing. And then they would say, when you have enough money to pay your debt, then you can go free. It was kind of like saying someone who was in prison who had no opportunity to raise any money, gather any money of any kind to pay their debt. They would never go free. They were sold indefinitely into slavery. In this way, God says, you will pay your debt by earning your way for six years and then you go free. No lifelong slavery. But also God didn't just command Israel to pay indefinitely for those who are poor without any kind of work or responsibilities. I love them. He restrains 
those who are needy from taking advantage of others. He says this, you will work for what you get. In this way, God prevents both parties from taking advantage of another. If you were poor, there was protection and safety that you could contractually agree to for six years, and that was the max. That's not the minimum. Someone could use this system for six months, and as long as they had enough to pay their way, then they would go free. Paul tells uh, the, the church in Thessalonica, he says these words, if a man does not work, then he should not eat. This is a biblical principle that God would push against slothfulness and chosen laziness and say, if you have the opportunity to earn your way, that's what you will do. Now, there's provisions later that we'll get to for those who cannot. But he says, if you have the ability to, you will. And so this restraint would protect Israel from just this blanket obligation to say, just take care of the poor. Just do everything. Just give to everyone who, who has their hands out and ask for something. And he says they will work for what they get. Because there's a certain kind of human dignity that comes with that. We see that even in the Garden of Eden when God commands work from Adam and Eve, yet they were supplied with everything. There's much of this theme in Genesis chapter 22 that God requires responsibility for our actions and does not allow the oppression of others to, uh, for the success of ourselves. In addition, he's giving judges the ability to rule fairly. And he's telling them and teaching them how they rule. Remember uh, when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to me and says, what are you doing? You're standing before the people all day long settling disputes and, and issues. It's because there was no system in which Moses was to guide. And so God is giving them these systems to say, if this happens, this is the consequence. If this happens, this is the consequence. If this happens, this is the consequence. This is how you rule and govern. So there's a second and very strong principle here that's evident through the text, and it has to do with human life, and specifically what I believe is the image of God. Notice in chapter 21, verse 12, he says this, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And if he did not lay in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then he will appoint to you a place which he may flee. There was these uh, cities of protection that if you uh, were guilty of murder, uh, it would be second degree or manslaughter. It was an accident. Maybe you were fighting, something happened, and the man died. You could flee to these cities of refuge, and you could not be, uh, you basically it was, a, it was almost like a house arrest type thing. Seven years you would go free. But he says, if you laid in wait for him, however, you act presumptuously towards a neighbor and cr- kill him craftily, You're to take even him from my altar that he may die. He who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. We know that God held a very high standard for honoring our parents. Again, 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or whether he's found in his possession, he shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. If men quarrel, And one strikes another with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed. And if he gets up and walks around outside of his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. And he shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he's completely healed. 
See, I, I, I think in this passage, we see this, if we dig into this, I think we see this point of, of God's character and that humanity as the image of God holds a special place in the heart of God. Humanity as the image of God, those who bear the image of God, hold a very special place in the heart of God. An ox, you know, you got to settle it with money. If it's a life, you pay with a life. This is very serious, he says. The image of God has distinct value. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where he says, Then the Lord formed man with the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And man became a living being. We have a Hebrew word here in the text that means to shape or to mold or fashion. Other places we see this same word referred to as the work of a potter, and Isaiah uses it in chapter 29. He says, you turn things around, shall the potter be considered equal with the clay? That is what would, uh, is made would say to his maker, did he not make me? Or what is what he says, what is formed say to who formed it? He has no understanding. Psalm 139, using this very same language as he formed us and breathed the breath of life, he says that this, you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. All of scripture denotes this absolutely unmistakable value of human life because it bears the image of God. All of it. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a potter or an artist work. The process is absolutely fascinating. There's mud everywhere. Their hands are covered in clay. But I think one of the most interesting things about pottery is that it's, it's almost impossible to make two pieces of pottery absolutely identical. <laughs> A good potter can make them very close, make them look identical, but they're not. They're different. But each piece bears the fingerprints of their designer. And the fingerprints of the one who formed us is all over us from the very beginning. He literally scoops us out of the dust and forms us and breathes life into us. There's so much that I would love to see here. Did he form every organ, every hair? What we know is that he reaches into the earth and forms us. This world is dust and it's probably better translated clobs or lumps of dirt. And with that interpretation, you see the potter begin to work. I think when we understand this, it changes how we see everything. It changes how we see ourselves and how we see others, doesn't it? When we see this characteristic of God that he values human life this much, when he has intrinsically placed value on the image of God, it changes everything. I think, honestly, I think sometimes if we're honest, it may be easier to think of others, to see others as the image of God, then we see ourselves as the image of God because we know us. We know our hearts. We know our minds. We know our struggles. We know we wish we could do and what we wish we were made of. And so for much of the world, we spend our lives trying to prove our significance. We try to prove it in things that we accomplish and we try to prove it and earn our significance by what we do rather than what and who we are. We're significant long before we ever do anything in this life. We're significant because he has placed significance on us. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody know the name 
Asafa Pal. Anyone? Anybody? Maybe one person in this room. Asafa Pal is an Olympian and a world record holder. This man ran faster than any other person on the planet has ever run before, and he held the world record for the 100-meter dash for over two years. It's the longest anyone has ever held the world record until Usain Bolt. In the athletic arena, this is the top to run faster than anyone has ever ran before. It's significant. It's very significant. That's a great accomplishment. But if his significance was placed in being literally the best in the world, his significance was uh, dramatically lost as soon as someone else was better. What we do has no bearing on our significance. It's who we are. Think about how tricky this is. Think about what's at stake if we get this wrong. If in my search for significance, I believe that that what I do makes me significant, I'll always compete against other images of God for significance. I won't be able to celebrate with them for the great things in their life. You know why? Because they found significance. So if I've got to find a way to outdo them, outbuy them, outlift them, outadopt them, outbirth them, and on and on and on and on we go. And because our significance comes from whose image we bear, we know and understand that even those who are still being formed in the womb, still being formed in the womb, carry this image of God as well. And I believe in Exodus chapter 21, we have the strongest case for life in Scripture that's clear from conception. Listen to this in Exodus 21, 22. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there's no injury, He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. Listen to this. But if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint a a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. I want you to pay attention very closely to what's happening here. I want you to pay close attention. If someone who is simply isn't carrying a child and accidentally, listen to this, accidentally strikes her in a way that causes her to give birth prematurely so that the baby dies, he dies. Are Are you gathering the character and the principle of the image of God that's denoted from Scripture all the way to conception here. This is something that's very significant. It's a life for a life. God is instructing his people that they have to treat all life, especially the unborn life, with absolute value because they are the image of God, because they're significant because the image of God. There's a professor at... At Princeton, uh, his name is Peter Singer. He's a, a, a professor of bioethics, and he attests to a principle called functionalism. And functionalism is a way, and it, it, it's an avenue, his avenue, uh, to make a, a pro-choice uh, stance and an effort. And, and this says that functionalism basically. Uh, would say that a person becomes a person, and actual, they envelop and develop personhood, 
when they have consciousness to self, the ability to interact, the ability to feel pain, and communicate. Different things like this. So a person, he puts this actually on a graph. As a child develops and grows and is self-aware, their ability to communicate their needs, they're able to do something that benefits and contributes to society. He says their value and their worth actually goes up. So it's not that a person has significance from the womb. It's that they can gain significance by what they can do. But also, he also believes that as this significance goes up, it also comes down. Later in age, when we lose the ability to connect with others, to communicate our needs, to to contribute to society, to be self-aware, he says this person no longer has any value and makes the case later on for euthanasia just by using the exact same argument as he does for abortion. Think about this. Think about this. Logically, when we escape what God is saying about the image of God, all the image of God, this is the logical conclusion. It's what they do that gives them significance. Think about this for a second. God does not discriminate in any way. If a man who was fighting with someone else was a leader in the community, what if he typically gave all of his money or half of his money to those in need? What if he was the best hunter in camp and provided more meat and protein and nutrition for the entire nation of Israel than anyone else? What if he took care of widows and orphans? What if he gave more to society than he took away? It didn't matter. God says a life inside the mother's womb is just as valuable as his. Think about this for a second. A life inside of the mother's womb is just as valuable as his. It's because of whose image we bear. And I would say that for many of us, we believe these things, and I would encourage you to do what we can do to protect life. I want to be really careful and not make this massively political, but this issue has become very political. Last month and like a few months ago, a couple months ago, this, this was the issue that politicians campaigned on. This was the major issue that we saw in all commercials. I support pro-choice. I support the woman's right to choose. I support these things. And so we have to look at these things with these lenses through Scripture that say, what does God say about this? And I understand, I understand there's other issues. I would just say this. They better be very weighty, very significant. If someone were to get up and with Peter Singer decide to run for office, he said, I support a woman's right to choose, and here's why. And I also support a child's right to euthanize their parents. Right? It would be very difficult for believers to say, like, that's my guy. 
It'd be very difficult for us to, in that moment to say, no, there's other issues. There's other issues, but you better stack, 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 stack. You better stack them all because when someone gets up and verbally says, I support murdering babies, we have to do something. We have to do something. And then it's not just with our votes, it's what we do. It's not just how we cast our ballot, it's what we do. Has the church stepped up in the fostering world, in the adoption world? I mean, think about this, for a mother who who went through 17 different foster homes and was abused in most of them, think about the choice that she has. She gets pregnant, we say, well, just, yeah, yeah, America has this great system, it's called the foster system, and she says, yeah, I, I know. What choice has the church given her? What choice when we have stepped in line and we have taken courses and classes and said, you know what, I'll get certified, I'll get trained so that when this opportunity comes, if God ever pushes it on the door, we're ready for it. Say, I'll be a different choice. I will be a different choice. Maybe adoption or fostering isn't the best fit for your home. You can support someone who is. Adoption is absurdly expensive. We can partner with families who have the opportunity to take that child in financially with ways for emotional and physical support. We can do more exchange. We, we, we have to do more exchange. We have to do more. It is not enough for us to sit in our chairs and say, this should not be this way. It's not enough. This principle, this moment where God is pushing on Israel, he says, I value this life. Did you notice that he he didn't even put how old or how far along the pregnancy was? Did you notice this? If a woman is with child and she's accidentally struck, it's a life for life. This is significant, he says. I think as we progress along is this last principle that it's not just that, that God has a this image of God that he wants to protect, but also he has a heart for the defenseless. For those still in the womb, those who cannot defend themselves. Notice what he says in Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. So those who come in, those aliens, those sojourners, obviously they were very easily taken advantage of. They had nothing. They couldn't protect themselves. And so the tendency, like Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt, was to absolutely oppress them and take advantage of them. He says, for you were strangers in the land once in Egypt. Remember, we're not going to do to them that they did to us. We're not going to do it, he says. And notice this. This is what, like, everything shifts and pivots on this passage. He says this, you should not afflict any widow or orphan. And note this, this consequence 
is different than every other consequence he gives. Notice this. If you afflict him at all, and he cries out to me, I will hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled. And watch this. And I will kill you with the sword. It's different than every other consequence. It's almost as like as the Lord starts to speak about the widow and orphan, the defenseless, it's almost as, as if his, his heart bursts with protection. And it's no longer, if you oppress them, then the nation should afflict this punishment on you. He says, no, this one's mine. I will afflict myself the punishment on you. If you oppress the widow or the orphan, the defenseless, you will deal with my sword, he says. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. See, I think this passage, as we read through these civil laws, we could read through them quickly and we could read ox and life and and punishments and consequences or we can see that God has a heart for people. He has this special value and significance that he's placed on the image of God and he has a heart for the defenseless. There's an interesting study done uh, by Baylor University released a few years back studying what Americans looked at as the different views of God. And part of the study was uh, the survey conducted by Gallup organization where they identified the four most prevalent views of God in America. This is our culture, our community, four most prevalent. <clears throat> there were some outliers But here's what they found. 31% would classify God mostly or mainly as an authoritative God who's angry at humanity's sins and engaged in every creature's life and world affairs, punishing us for those things. Uh, 23% believe in a benevolent God who wants the best for you forgives you and accepts anyone just as they are. Uh, The 16% was a critical God, has his judgmental eye on the world and he's not gonna intervene either to punish or to comfort. And then 24% said that they believe that God, they would classify him uh, most in in this way, distant. Who's more of a cosmic force that very few outliers that maybe the benevolent with a few tweaks would say, I'd say God's a loving God. Or he cares about those who bear his image in ways that we can't fully understand. You know what's interesting later on uh, in the New Testament, we're going to get here after we get through uh, some other laws. Paul says that Christ has fulfilled the law. All of it. All of these things, all the civil laws, all the ceremonial laws, all the things that Christ has fulfilled the law. And so Paul pushes us on this in Galatians 6, verse 2. So bear one another's burdens. Love one each other well. Value each other. Place significance on one another and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Scripture's saying, 
Look at people like Christ looks at people. Treat others the way that Christ would treat others. Love others the way that God has loved you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I'll be honest, this text is difficult and there's some places even in it that I don't fully understand. And in my pride, I have many questions and many thoughts on how it could have been better, even if I'm honest. But also the Spirit quickly assures me that your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. They're not even close. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us that and teach us to search for you in it. Lord, I pray for even those in the room right now that have struggled with their own significance. Maybe the things that they have done or the things that have been done to them have cast a heavy shadow on the significance that you have placed in them and on them from conception. And so, Lord, I pray that even now that they would respond to this text and and be assured that you have seen us, God, that you choose us, that you love us. That this value you place on your prized creation of humanity is like no other. And everyone in this room bearing that same image, loved by you. So Jesus, we thank you for the price that you paid to bring these broken images back to the Father. So, Lord, I pray that we would love you well. We would love others well. And we would fulfill the law of Christ, loving and seeing each other. That's your name that we pray.